Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 47 of the Liberty Cafe. It's always a blessing to be able to do this and be a blessing to have you with me doing the Liberty Cafe. So thank you for that, and thank you also to our sponsor, Texas Scorecard, who has a great lineup of, of podcasts, not just me, but Luke Macias and Michael Sullivan, and a lot of great things that help us as citizens see what's going on in our government, what our responsibilities to government are, and I highly recommend that you get over and look at more of their uh, podcast and materials over there. Uh, They're doing a great job of fighting for liberty here in Texas. So today I'd like to begin the first part of a two-part series on, let's call it the purpose of government. Because if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of debate going on out there about what government should be doing and what government shouldn't be doing. Should the government, for instance, be able to mandate that we wear masks? Should they be able to – of course, in Texas, we kind of had the the chicken way of doing that. You know, the governor – never really mandated that we wear a mask. He just mandated that businesses could be fined if people were in them weren't wearing masks. And so it kind of left it up to the, to the businesses to mandate mask wearing under the threat of a fine while still going around and telling everybody that, oh, I'm not mandating masks. So, but whatever way you do it, should the government be able to do that or not? Or what about public schools? Should should government be involved in education at all? Should the federal government be involved in education, just the state, just the local, or none of them? Should that be done just in the family, in the home, and through charity? What about welfare? One of the great books that you'll read, you can read out there is The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Alasky. And Marvin basically just looked at the system of charity in the United States back in the 1800s and found that it actually worked pretty well, that while there were problems, people were getting helped and, and benefiting from private charity. But then the government started coming in and doing what the church had been doing largely, but also nonprofits and just individuals. And now we have the welfare state with churches and individuals and charity kind of on the sides. There's still a lot going on, but the primary focus of welfare is the government today. Should government be doing that or not? Well, we're going to have that conversation today and basically and today and next week. And then we're not going to answer all the questions, but I just want us to kind of step back and look at some of the principles involved so that you can make up your mind on these things yourself, and and if your minds are already made up on this, then you might have some more foundations in Scripture in order to argue and fight for your positions. 
So today we're going to look at – well, first we're going to look a little bit at the purpose of government and then we're going to look at – just briefly go over the four types of government and then look specifically at the first two types of government in that list and then we'll get to the second two types next week. So what's the purpose of government? Well, I think a really good place to start in looking at that would be the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9, and we're going to read verses 6 and 7. And just to set it in context, if you've ever gone to a Christmas Eve service or read books about Advent and Christmas, you're always going to run across passages from Isaiah because Isaiah wrote a lot about Jesus Christ. And remember, Isaiah was writing about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And of course, you know, unbelievers, liberals, which aren't necessarily the same group of people. I've known some very nice liberals who I'm convinced are Christians, misguided Christians, but nonetheless Christians. But anyway, typically you see your unbelievers think that, well, there's no way Isaiah could have been written 600 years before Jesus because he wrote all these stuff. So obviously it was written much later and then annotated even later than that. So it could comport with what happened in Jesus's actual life. But for those of us who believe, we know that God gave prophecies to prophets, and so he could tell us things about the future. And so here it is, Isaiah writing about Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement about government. Now, we can't just take the word government there and automatically apply it to civil government because there's more to the concept of government than just civil government, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And we've we got to be careful. We, we just don't want to read into Scripture what we think about government. We want to read out of Scripture what it says. But nonetheless, that's a pretty comprehensive statement that when you think about government, you need to think about Jesus Christ and that his government encompasses and rules over all individuals and lesser governments and nations. I think that's a good way to understand that. And I think if we go over to Matthew 28, which is the, the part of Matthew 28, the part of the Bible which is known as the Great Commission, this is right before Jesus Christ goes up to heaven after his resurrection, he goes to the apostles and who meet him or his disciples and out in Galilee, and this is what he says to them before he rises up into the sky. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think one of the great things in this passage is something we miss a lot. That when he tells the church, and this is about the church, it's also about government, but just the church for a moment here. He tells the church, the disciples, to go make disciples of who or what. 
he doesn't tell them to go out and disciple a bunch of people. He says to go out and disciple the nations. And there are some people in the Christian church who just think that it's not the church's job to change the culture, that the culture is going to be the culture and we need to preach Christ and people need to be converted, but we don't, we're not trying to change the culture. But, but I, I think that's way off base. because So what happens if you're doing your job as a church and you're converting people? And let's say you convert the governor of the state of Texas. I'm not saying anything about the current state of the governor's soul, but I'm just talking about generally. You convert the governor of the state of Texas, the lieutenant governor, the speaker. You convert, let's say, 80 members of the Texas House. You convert 20 members of the Texas, legisl- uh, Texas Senate. You convert, you know, what is there? How many counties are there in Texas? 254, maybe. It's been a long time. But I think that's pretty close. You convert half of them. I mean, and then the citizens, of course, within those people, they're being converted. They're electing those people. Don't you think there's going to be a radical transformation of the culture if you have all of a sudden people in authority and then people who are electing people in authority being converted and believing in Jesus Christ and seeing clearly the message of the gospel? That's going to change things, right? Thou shall not steal. That's really going to be implemented in a different way than in a culture that's led by unbelievers. So that's just a side note for those who think that there's no hope in our culture. But I have a very positive outlook on the future of our culture, despite it. it, I mean, I have to be the first to admit it looks like we're going the wrong direction. But I don't think that's the case. God is taking us in a direction, and it's just we know the direction— but sometimes we don't see how we're, he's getting us there, but he is. But let's get back to the specifically to the government. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what we find there is that it's basically the culmination of what we saw back in Isaiah. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and now we see here after Jesus came, was born. He lived a life of obedience. He died on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. He's resurrected, and now he's going up to heaven, and he's going to sit at the right hand of God. Where's he going to sit? He's going to sit on a throne. What's he going to do there? Well, a lot of things, but among other things, he's going to reign over the earth. The government's going to be on his shoulder, and all authority has been given to him, and that includes authority over government. And so, again, if Christ has authority over all these things— then we need to be looking to the Bible to see how these government, in particular, we're looking at today, actually works. So that's what I want us to do in the, in the next 10 minutes or so that we have to talk today. So basically, and I'm not going to go through how we get to all this, but there, there are four types of government that God has ordained, and only four types of government, where he has given specific authority to people, to do things. The first type of government is individual government. The second type of government is the family government. The third type of government is church government. And the fourth type is civil government. Now, those are the four types when we do that. Now, it's important for us to remember that that these are the only God-ordained forms of government. Now, there's other 
types of authority in this world that are modeled after this. For instance, business. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an employee. I have a boss. All the, the, the forms and factors of government, uh, of these types of governments we're talking about, you see those showing up in businesses and, and in other situations. But those aren't ordained forms of government. They're, they're models of that. But these are the four types of government that God has ordained. And, I, and it's really important to remember that because we tend to think of these days when we think of government as simply the civil government. You say government, civil government, we go right to it. But that's not the way it always been. You go back to Noah Webster and his very first dictionary called the American Dictionary of the English Language of 1828. So what's that, almost 200 years ago now? And the very first definition of government in that was control, restraint. Men are apt to neglect the government of their temper and passions. So the common use, the most common use of government back in 1828 was self-government or self-control. And then you go on through the definitions, and you get all these other definitions that apply to these governments that we just talked about. Uh, for instance, the, the second one is the exercise of authority, and that can be in communities, societies, or states, but not necessarily just states. The third definition that Nebster, Noah Webster came up with applied to the household, family government, and it's not till the fourth definition of government that Webster gets to the system of polity in a state. Well, if you look at the Merriam-Webster dictionary, which is the, the modern-day Webster dictionary, you go to it and you look up government. Well, the definition that was number one in 1828 is now number seven, the last definition in there, and they call it obsolete. They say that the seventh definition, which is government is moral conduct or behavior, which was the number one definition in 1828, now it's the obsolete definition. And so you can see how the culture over time, you know, words change all the time, and that's okay, the word use, but sometimes it's not a good thing because what the culture is tending to do with this definition is push out this biblical concept of multiple governments and just put every authority in the civil government. And of course, when you do that, that also kind of puts God out of the picture. And so government becomes God. And I'd suggest that's what the English language is kind of reflecting today. So real quickly, let me hit these first two types of government, because it's really important for us as Christians, and even if you're not a Christian, those of us who believe in limited individual government to understand these concepts. So the first form of government ordained by God was individual or self-government. And, and the way you get these, I'm not going to go through all the details, but the way you get these forms of government, it's through covenantal relationship. God has a covenant with the individual. He has a covenant with the, the head of the family. He has a covenant with the leaders of the church and the members of the church, and he has a covenant with the leaders of civil government and the citizens in civil government. And so that first showed up, the covenant with individuals, it showed up in the very first chapter of the Bible 
people call it the creation covenant. Some people call it the dominion covenant. But it's basically when God told man to go out, be fruitful and multiply, and exercise dominion over the birds and the animals and the land, and to subdue the earth. So God has a covenant with us to go out and do these things, and we're required to do that. And when we fail to do that, which is what happened at Babel, everybody thinks the tower was the bad thing, and it was, but the really bad thing was there are all these nations running around at that time, and they all tried to come together rather than keep spreading out and be fruitful and multiplying. They tried to, rather than being decentralized, they decided to be centralized. And they came back, and they did that because they thought they could be like God, just like we saw in Adam and Eve in the garden. And so the way we get around that, the way we don't do those bad things is through self-government or self-control. And God gave us these different types of government so we could do what he asked us to do. And the first way we do that is through this self-government, self-control. It's what makes possible obedience to God. Of course, that can't happen unless we believe in God. And so we have to be saved in order to do this, but you still see evidence of self-control in people where they don't go out and do all these bad things. And and this is really caught up in the quote from Benjamin Franklin. At least it could be real, it could be apocryphal, but the story goes Benjamin Franklin came walking out of the Constitutional Convention after they'd adopted the Constitution, and he was asked what type of government did they come up with, did they give the people. And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. And what he and all the other founders of this country believed, whether they were Christians or not, was that you're going to be able to keep this government if you exercise self-control. And if you don't, or self-government, and if you don't, you're not going to be able to keep this government. And one might look at the, the world around them today and decide that maybe that's one of the reasons our our society is collapsing around us because we have lost self, the ability to self-control in large portions. So the second type of government I want to look at is the family government. And there's also a covenant with the family, right? And we, we see that in a lot of places with the Bible, But what, because there's all those different parts. You know, in the old days, back in the mid, near Mideast and those types of things, Uh, You you saw these covenants between sovereigns and the people they ruled or higher sovereigns and lower sovereigns. And and you had this this type of sovereignty, right? Who's in charge? You had representation, who they're delegating authority to. You had law. What are the laws that everybody's going to live under? You had sanctions. What happens if you live under them or don't live under them? And you had inheritance. How long is this organization going to last? And you see all those aspects put into the family, right? You have sovereignty, the, the, the husband is the head of the family. You also have the husband and wife as head over the children. So there's, a, there's both the, the head of the family and there's delegated authority in the family. And then you have law, hopefully with your family. The, the main law you follow is God's law, but there are other family policies, if you will, that you're supposed to follow. There are no sanctions. What happens if you don't follow the sanctions? Well, if in the case of kids, they may get spanked. You know, hopefully there's still some of that going on in society today. And then there's inheritance. 
the parents have children. They raise them up in the Lord. The kids get the inheritance. They move on, and they do the same thing, and the family continues. Well, the reason that's important for us to think about is that family government, you know, we, we can't, family government is really, the family is the foundational unit of society. It, it's what takes individuals and puts them together in units that function as a unit and then function with other units out there. And that's really easy to see in, in a lot of the laws that God put in the Bible to help protect the family. You know, for instance, divorce, that's a bad thing. Polygamy, that's a bad thing. Adultery, incest, homosexuality, prostitution, all those things are out there that can destroy the family. God has said, don't do those kinds of things. Yet we, we've seen assault on the family a lot. And it didn't just start with all this stuff that's going on today. You know, perhaps, you know, polygamy, the Mormons brought into this country you know, over 100 years ago. And then divorce, we started getting no-fault divorce back in the 60s, 70s. And then, of course, all the craziness today. But it's an assault on the family because it's an assault on God. You know, Satan and his minions know they can't get directly to God, so they attack us. And one of the, the fundamental unit of us is the family. And the reason that leads not just to, to the breakdown of the family, but the breakdown of society, because families, if you look at the Bible, are the units that are responsible basically for the provision of health, education, and welfare. I think before we got a Department of Education, there actually at the federal level used to be a Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and that is so wrong on so many levels. That's the family's job, and we're not going to go into all the scripture, but, but here's just a few I'll, that you can look up if you want to that help make this case, I think. Psalm 78, uh, Proverbs 31, Genesis 23, Leviticus 25, 1 Timothy 5. You, you look at those and a lot of others that I think make a pretty good case that families are where health, education, and welfare should be provided, and maybe the only place they should be provided, not government. And then finally, I, I think we can make the case here, and we'll talk more about this next week, that church government and civil government are really modeled, modeled after families, right? You have rulers, you have subjects, you have law, you have discipline, you have inheritance. All those things that we see in the family, we also see in those other forms of government. So we'll, we'll wrap up now. For, with this, the, the individual government and the family government, next week we'll hit the church government and civil government. And I'll just close here by saying, you know, with self-government and family government, those are the fundamental core governments we have here in society. It's not going to happen. Society's not going to flourish. Our nation's not going to flourish if those are not working. If we can't self-govern ourselves and we can't protect the family, government and society is going to collapse. So as I've said many times before, we need to be talking to God and praying to God say that he'd be reform in those areas of our life. Well, thanks again for joining me on episode 47 of the Liberty Cafe. It's a blessing to have you here with me and a blessing to be part of our sponsor, the Texas Scorecard. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.